Good evening. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is an honor and privilege to be here today. I'm thankful to be able to bring the word of God to you this evening. I want to thank my elders and uh, my leaders here at this church for giving me the opportunity to proclaim and exposit the scriptures to you this morning. If you have a copy of God's word, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. And as you're turning there, I want to give a little context here. Matthew opens this gospel with a very essential theme. A theme that Jesus Christ is king. And that he has come to save his people from their sins. You see, redemption has always been at the heart of God. And Matthew's mission is to introduce us to the one who can accomplish it. In chapter 1, we see the genealogical connection that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. And that he came from the line of David. He is the king. In chapter 2, we see how the wise men came to worship the king of the Jews. And how the evil king Herod plotted to destroy Jesus but could not do it. In chapter 3... We see John the Baptist who pronounces the arrival of this great king who has come to earth. Chapter 4, we see that Jesus was led up into the wilderness to be tempted by the God of this world. And praise the Lord, he triumphed over Satan to demonstrate that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. After he triumphs over Satan... Our king begins to proclaim his message. He begins to proclaim the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. His message, repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Chapter 5, our king teaches his followers the mission of the king. he, he, He teaches the mission of living out the Beatitudes as salt and light. And then he teaches them how to relate to each other concerning the law and dealing with anger, divorce, and love. And finally, in chapter 6, our Lord teaches about the spiritual disciplines of fasting and giving and prayer. And he contrasts it with the hypocritical practice of the Pharisees of the day who were not doing uh, these religious practices for the glory of God. Rather, they were doing their practices to bring glory to themselves. Next, Jesus draws attention to the things our hearts can treasure. Dangers that will rule our hearts and mind and can take our time and affections away from God. That's why Jesus says, seek the things in heaven. Seek things that are above, where moth and rust will not destroy, nor thieves break in and steal. He addresses the heart, though. He gets to the heart of the issue, because the heart is what we treasure. And then right after that, he transitions into explaining that you cannot serve both God and money. You're either going to make one your supreme or the other supreme. You can't have both as your supreme. It's either God or money. And that brings us right to our text this morning. And I've labeled this uh, message, The King's Cure for Worry. The king's cure for worry. We're going to start right here in verse 25 through 34. But before we do that, let's ask God 
to bless our time this evening as we dig into his word. Father God, thank you for sending King Jesus here to rescue us from our sin. Thank you that our King not only saves us from sin, but he teaches us how to live. He teaches us the dangers of this world and the dangers of our fallen heart and how they are so prone to wander from you. We're so prone to worry and be anxious, Lord. And Lord, we so desperately need to hear from you this evening. Let your word be exalted. Let your son be magnified. And Lord, I pray that we would leave here with a greater affection for Jesus Christ than when we came in here this evening, Lord. Have your way with us this morning. Expose areas in our hearts and our lives that we may be trusting in that we are blinded to, Lord. Let your word do its work in our lives, Lord. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Look with me, if you will, at verse 25, and I'll read to verse 34. It says, For this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to do what you will put on. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the sky, that they do not sow nor reap nor gather crops into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more important than they? And which of you, by worrying, can add a single day to his lifespan? And why are you worried about clothing? Notice how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor, nor do they spin thread for cloth. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. In this passage, our Lord brings attention to a very important matter, a matter which affects our personal lives and our personal relationships. It's so serious that our Lord mentions it approximately five times in these nine verses. You see, Jesus knows what the potential dangers are for us, and he warns his children of these dangers. And he reiterates this command frequently through this passage because he knows the lives and the ministry of his children will be ineffective if they are overwhelmed with worry. The English word for worry comes from a German root which means to slay, kill, injure by biting and shaking the throat. It literally means to, to choke out someone. That's precisely what it does. It will strangle the life right out of you. 
It is a consuming concern of doubt that completely denies trust in God. Calvin said, For what can be more awfully tormenting than to be constantly racked with doubt and anxiety? The answer to that is nothing. When worry begins to set in, it's like a wound that becomes severely infected, and that infection begins to spread like gangrene in your mind and your heart until it is completely eroded or incapacitated any trust or faith that you have in the sovereign God. It's like a cancer that will consume you from the inside out. It's dangerous, and if left unchecked, it will be absolutely deadly to you. Jesus makes it crystal clear to forsake worry. Now, it's essential to differentiate between being concerned about something versus worrying about something. There's a fine line in the balance, though. Having a healthy concern about your daily responsibilities is good. It shows that you are thinking about the priorities that God has entrusted you with. For example, you want to be concerned about raising your children, right, in a household that honors the Lord. As a Christian, we should have the conviction to follow that biblical mandate. You don't want to be negligent in this area of your life because your children need to see the gospel of Jesus Christ demonstrated from your life to them. The Bible calls us to be diligent in raising our children according to the ways of the Lord. Deuteronomy 6.4 and Ephesians 6.4 really hone that in for us. But you also don't want to worry about their salvation. You don't want to start heaping up unnecessary guilt and shame and prolong this anxiety about worrying about their salvation. You do your part and you trust the Lord will do his. Salvation only belongs to the Lord. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but it was God that gave the increase. Let me ask you a question tonight, church. Is there something weighing on you this evening? Are you worried about something? Maybe you lost a job and you're worried about how you're going to make provisions for your family. Maybe you're having trouble in your marriage and you're wondering how long your marriage is going to last. How long are you going to be able to hang on? It could be that you've lost a loved one, a child, or a spouse, and now you're worried about what the future holds for you. Maybe you have a wayward son or daughter who has rejected the faith and has completely walked away from the gospel, and you're wondering when they will ever come around. Pastors and elders aren't exempt from worrying either. Maybe you have a counseling issue that you're dealing with that is just weighing you down and you don't know how much longer you can take. Or maybe you're just overly concerned about a big issue in the church and you're worried if it could potentially go south and wreck things. You see, there are so many possibilities in which worry can just capture us. And if we're not careful... It will consume us. Proverbs 12, 25 says, Anxiety in a person's heart weighs it down. This verse tells us that anxiety weighs you down. It's heavy when you carry it around. 
It's like somebody has just pumped your inner man with lead and you're just dragging yourself around because you're taking that anxiety and worry everywhere you go with you. But this, word, this verse doesn't leave us in despair. It says a good word will make you glad. Brothers and sisters, I have a good word for you tonight. It's a good word from a good God. <clears throat> and he desires that you hear it. He not only desires that you hear it, but he also desires that you would trust in him more tonight. Yes, we must trust him in everything. And Jesus is going to teach us two ways in which we are to trust him tonight. My first point is you must trust God to provide for you. This is going to be in verses 25 through 31. Jesus gives a direct command here. Do not be worried. Do not be worried. That is as straightforward as you can get. Let me summarize that for you. Stop worrying, Jesus says. Cut it out. You don't need to do it. It will wreck your life. Stop worrying, he says. It's a, it's a straightforward command. It's a command that needs attention. Jesus states this phrase as an imperative, which means it's something that needs to be done right away. Failure to do so will only result in negative consequences, consequences that will result in affecting your being as a person. Notice in the same uh, verse here in 25, notice that he says, do not be worried. That, ver that verb be involves the whole of yourself. It establishes a continual state of perpetuate, perpetual a state of immersion into, into worry. When you are worried or stricken with fear, it involves not only a part of you or even a quarter of you. It is the whole of you. It is an all-consuming anxiety that engulfs you. Also notice the object of your worry. Jesus states it's your life. Your life. We worry about the things that surround our lives, don't we? You just give us a minute, we'll think of a way to worry about something. It doesn't take long for that to happen. But Jesus will get specific about what the crowd is worrying about. But you can apply worry to anything, okay? It's not going to be just these things that uh, his followers are uh, worrying about, but you can apply it anywhere in your life. Look, we only have so much time, and the Bible gives us all kinds of metaphors and description of just the shortness of life, the brevity of life. It's, in the Psalms, it's like a hand breath. We're here and we're gone. He also says it's like grass. It's like grass. It's here one day and the next day it's gone. James even uses the metaphor of like a vapor. It's like you're coming on, it's like a steam coming off the cup. You see it one minute and then it just dissipates and it's gone. That's your life. It's going to happen quickly. It's going to be brief. And God does not want you to absorb all your time that he has given you to fill it with anxiety. It will render you ineffective in your faith, in your ministry, in your marriage, or any other personal relationship that you have. Worry will destroy. 
If your cup is filled with anxiety tonight, you need to take that cup and go ahead and dump it out, okay? Because you don't need any anxiety in there. One may say, well, well how do I do that? How do I, how, do I, how do I do it? Simple. I got four words for you tonight. There's no magical formula here. Trust in the Lord. It's that simple. But yet, it's so hard to do because we get so absorbed into worrying about things. When you fill your cup with trust, there's no more room when the storms of anxiety start pouring down in your life. You're filled up because you trust and you know God. You know God is going to keep his word. You know God is going to do what he says. We need to trust him. Psalm 31, 14, uh, 31, 14 through 15 says, But as for me, I trust in you, Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. If anyone had the right to be worried, it was King David. David had all sorts of enemies surrounding him at any moment. His life was constantly being threatened. His life was constantly on the line. There was all kinds of fire-breathing pagan Gentiles ready to cut his head off. So if, they, if somebody had anxiety, it could have been this man right here. But David made a choice. He made a choice that he was going to trust in the Lord. Brothers, sisters, we need to make that choice today that we are going to trust in the Lord. If you worry, you're choosing to reject what God has promised you. You see, God is trustworthy. Amen? Come on. Okay. He's got a very long record of being trustworthy, doesn't he? He keeps his promises. He does not lie. Everything he does comes to pass. That's someone you can put your trust in. Amen. Jesus is going to draw out three primary resources for, for us here tonight. The people of his day were what, what the people of his day were worried about. They were worried about food, drink, and clothing. What am I going to eat? What am I going to drink? What am I going to wear? These are things we think of every day, right? Whether you realize it or not, every morning you wake up, you usually go into the kitchen and probably feed this flesh, right? You go in there to sustain yourself. You eat and drink and wear clothes every single day. And we, maybe we don't, we don't understand this. Maybe we're not conscious that we think about these things, but the more time that goes by and we don't have one of these necessities, Oh boy, we'll start thinking about it real quick, won't we? If you miss a meal or you miss a couple meals, your, your belly's going to be shaking its fist at you really quickly, telling you to put something in there. <clears throat> believe me, uh, if you don't believe me, just go ahead and try it. I guarantee you, you're going to be aware of these necessities that you can potentially be worried about. But God does not want us to worry about what we are going to need for survival. He wants us to have a dependence on him. He wants us to trust him. He will do whatever he says he's going to do. I love this visible illustration that Jesus gives us to 
stop worrying. That brings me to my point A. Trust God by observing the bird kingdom. He says, look at the birds. You know, I could just picture Jesus. He's, his theology is just absolutely amazing, okay? He's out here preaching away. And as he's probably uh, teaching his Sermon on the Mount, here comes a big, uh, big flock of birds. And he points at them. He says, you see those birds right there flying over my head? They, they don't sow, they don't reap, and they don't gather. And you know what? They also are not anxious about anything. They don't worry. In other words, what Jesus is saying, those birds that you see up there, they don't plant gardens, they don't harvest food, and they don't keep their food in a facility. Okay? Birds don't have grocery stores. They don't have supermarkets or pantries. And God still provides for them. The birds by instinct trust that the one who created them will also be able to provide a meal for them. We must also consider that God does not want us to sit back, right, and just collect provisions as some sort of welfare check from God. No, God wants you to work, okay? Work is good. Just like the birds still have to fly around and look for seed and worms and stuff like that, we have responsibility to go out and work. Work was given to us by God before the fall, okay? So it is good to work. God wants us to work. And even though we are to trust by faith that God will provide, he has retasked us for that, with that responsibility to go out and work. So we are trusting God that he is going to provide for us, provide work for us, provide energy for our bodies to work, but we're also going out and working. We're taking on that responsibility that God has given us. We are trusting and obeying what God has commanded us. Next, let's see how Jesus argues from the greater to the lesser by asking two questions here. He's, he's asking two questions that demand, really, an obvious answer here. Look at verse 26. Is not life more than food? There's the greater to the lesser. Is not life more than food? Your body more than clothing? Of course, yeah. Are you not more important than they? Okay, he's pointing to the birds again and these objects that he, he provides for you. And it just demands an obvious answer. He's asking these rhetorical questions. Are you not more important than they? I mean, he doesn't even, even answer it. It's so obvious. Absolutely you are more important than those things. These temporal earth things have no match to the importance in which God created you. God created you in his image. Genesis 1.26 tells us that. We are made in his image and likeness. And in verse 27, he also explains that he is also our heavenly father. This expression of relationship is explained in the caring paternal way that he is God the father in he is a good father. He's one that stewards his creation well. He is a benevolent father. He provides for his creation by giving it what it needs to survive. And get this, 
he loves you so much. He loves you so much that he provides for you, but he not only provides just for your spirit, uh, physical needs, but he also provides for your spiritual needs, right? God the Father sent Jesus Christ on a mission to rescue you, right? He sent, he sent his son from heaven to die for your sins. He was willing to sacrifice his own son to be a covering and a propitiation for you. That means you are very important to him. Do you see that? If he can provide for your salvation, guess what? He can provide for your physical needs as well that we get hung up with worry on. Romans 8.32 says, He did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. And Paul says, How will he not also with him freely give us all things? If we trust him to save us from our sins, we ought to trust him that he can provide our basic needs. Someone may say, well, you know, I, I don't really sweat the little things. It's just the really big things that cause me to worry. I don't waste my time worrying about food and clothing and stuff like that. I got all that. It's just those really big things that irritate me and cause me worry and anxiety and everything. Listen. God does not want you to worry about anything. God's got this. You don't, and I don't. <clears throat> because he knows anxiety is a killer. And it is a sin because it takes the trust out of the picture and it inserts doubt and fear into there. Look at verse 27. Jesus points out the fruitlessness of consuming your time with worry. Look down there with me. At 27, he says, And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? Theologians have kind of debated over what that little phrase means, add a single hour to his life. The NASB translated it, but some translations say add stature to himself. But either way, if you're, if you're, adding to the length of your life or adding to your stature of life, worry does neither of those things. If anything, it takes away from your life. It kills you. Worrying will destroy you. It will only shorten your life. WebMD is a, a trusted website that uh, lists all kinds of medical conditions and medicines. I'm sure if you had some sort of rash or some sort of sickness, you probably Googled it and WebMD popped up and told you something about what you had. And this article that was on there had an article specifically uh, about the effects of worry on the anatomy. The article reads, chronic worry and emotional stress can trigger various health problems. Surprise. It goes on to say, the fight or flight response causes the body's sympathetic nervous system to release stress hormones such as cortisol. These hormones can boost blood sugar levels and triglycerides, which are body, uh, blood fats, that can be used by the body for fuel. The hormones also cause physical reactions such as, and I just took a few off of this thing. That thing was like, it was so big. So I've just got a few. Dizziness, dry mouth, fast heartbeat, fatigue, headaches, inability to concentrate, irritability, muscle aches, suppression of the immune system, digestive orders, muscle tension, short-term memory loss, premature 
coronary artery disease, heart attack, and a whole host of other problems. And you'll wonder why Jesus tells us not to worry. I think he knows what he's talking about, okay? <laughs> that brings us to point B here. Trust God by observing the plant kingdom, 28 through 30. God can provide what you need when you need it. There is a reason his name is Jehovah Jireh because he is known as a provider, and especially for his children. Oftentimes, people get confused with things they need versus things they want. Our culture is inundated with keeping up with the latest fads and styles. And the world's decree is that you got to look a certain way and you got to dress a certain way to be accepted, to fit in. It communicates to our generation that your dress is who you are. It's always concerned about the exterior, never the interior. But God does not want us to worry about our clothes, nor does he want us to worry about the stuff we need. Look how Jesus draws the hearer's attention to observe the scene around him. When, when Jesus ascended the mountain to start preaching at Sermon on the Mount, he did not just climb up a dirt hill. I thought that for the longest time that Jesus was over there in Israel and, you know, he was just plotting out a place to go and he just climbed this big mud hill and started preaching. That wasn't the case at all. No, it, it wasn't. He uh, ascended this mountain and it was an absolutely stunning scene that surrounded him. It was a perfect illustration for his message. The fields around him were peppered with beautiful flowers in the valleys and the hillsides. Some of the flowers represented were crown imperials, golden amaryllis, and scarlet and white anemones. These were kind of like lily type of flowers, flowers that possessed vibrant life and vibrant color. Notice in the text what he says about this character uh, named Solomon here. He says, and you who are worried about clothing, observe, it's verse 28, observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. This was a man, Solomon, whom God blessed with the most profound wisdom that's ever been known on this planet. He not only gave him wisdom, but he had riches untold. He was the richest man on the planet at that time. He was at Forbes number one, and there wasn't even a close second. Okay, But what Jesus is pointing out here is the robes that Solomon owned, which would have had the most brilliant dyed robes, to demonstrate his royalty and his prestige. And the material he possessed was bar none some of the greatest materials that he used for his robes. He said, those things that he had, they couldn't even match the beauty of these lilies over here that you're seeing. And remember, his, li his listeners were worrying about their clothes. You see, these people did not have an entire wardrobe to choose from. They didn't have, like everybody in Ormond Beach has, a walk-in closet where you can just go in and look for what you want to wear. 
uh, most of them had what was on their back. And they were worried about what their next outfit was going to be because more than likely what they were carrying on their back was probably dirty. And so that was on their mind and heart. What am I going to wear? But God brings comfort to them by pointing out two truths in these verses. Look at what he says about these flowers again, or these lilies. He says, the flowers do not labor or spin for cloth, which is basically descriptors of how you would make clothes. These flowers are inanimate objects. They have no will. They can't move. They merely exist off the sovereign hand of God. The flowers can't even care for themselves. They can't paint themselves, and they can't weave their own design. And Jesus is teaching us that God, the Father, provides all this for these flowers. He provides every one of the lily's needs. Next, he points to the shortness of the span of the grass, which would appear in that same verse, which, where this grass would just kind of appear in the morning and it would die off by night or the next day. And Jesus says, how much more will God provide for you? He provides for just a bunch of grass. If God's going to provide for this grass that has a very short lifespan, that's just part of an inanimate creation, how much more is he going to provide for his children? That's why he says, look, just look around you. Open your eyes up and you will see what God is doing. And worry doesn't do that for us. Worry pulls blinders over your eyes and you get self-absorbed with what you don't have. And your mind is just all over the place. But Jesus says, how much more will God provide for you? He provides for this grass that's one day here and one day gone. Hey, he's got you. Don't worry. That's what Jesus is teaching here. If you can't see that demonstrated in the natural pictures that he's given us through the creation that we get to see on a day-to-day -day basis, what does he say about that? Look, look down at that verse. What does he say about people who don't acknowledge the sovereign care, the sovereign hand of God? He says, you of what? Faith. Lots of faith? No. Oh, little faith. You got, li you got little faith. See, we don't want little faith. God does not want you to have little faith. God wants you to have maximized faith. Why? Because he's a big God and he wants his disciples to have a big faith. Okay? God wants us to think of him that way. He wants us to trust in him. And back in the garden, we see Adam and Eve, when they sinned against God, they tried to be their own clothing designers, didn't they? They tied their bodies and, uh, with plants to try to hide their nakedness. They said fig leaves in the Old Testament. They're trying to, to cover their guilt and shame that resulted from their disobedience. And they tried to find a way to hide from the holiness of God. But needless to say, it didn't work. And God, in his grace, saw that they had failed miserably when it came to dressing themselves, so he covered them with a cover that was not their own, a cover that he could only provide. It was a clothing made from animal skins because the animal skins would be representative of God clothing them rather than them clothing them for themselves. Animal sacrifices were always required for sin in the Old Testament. 
But in the new covenant, Jesus Christ is the covering for all believers. He does this by covering us with his perfect righteousness. That way, when we stand before God on Judgment Day, God's not going to see Matthew McRae on Judgment Day. Praise God, because he would send me straight to hell. When God sees me, he's going to see me clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's the only way that we are going to be getting into the kingdom of God. It's the only way we're able to get into heaven not based on what we've done, but based only what Jesus Christ has done. Are you clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ this evening? Have you surrendered your life to God? Have you surrendered your life to Jesus Christ? If not, fall before the cross of Jesus Christ tonight and surrender your life over to him. What are you waiting for? Today is the day of salvation, Scripture says. We need to get right with God now. Amen? Let's look at uh, verses 31 through 34. It brings me to my second point. Trust God by putting him first. Trust God by putting him first. Notice in verse 31, Jesus gives the psychology of worry here. He explains how it turns itself into a perpetual pattern of doubt. And it usually begins with a question and then becomes rapid fire from there. What if this happens? What if that happens? Yeah, it's a perpetual what, what, what if? And it leads us down a trail of no return. And it usually begins with like a harmless concern or we're and then that concern draws more attention to itself and then that concern turns into a matter and that matter becomes an issue, and that issue keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. We make it bigger. It's not that it's bigger, but we make big issues out of small things. Then we think of every possible scenario that could happen with that issue, right? Every, everything that could go wrong, every possible thing that could be messed up, right? That's what worry does. It just leads you down these rabbit trails that you can never get back from, doesn't it? And then it just holds you there. It's choking you like the, like the German root word. It's like a rabid dog. It's got you by the neck and it's just choking the life right out of you. But we got to know something. That worry is heavy. Worry is destructive. Worry is wasteful. Worry is mind-numbing. And worry is depressing. Worry takes you to a place of endless scenarios that will cause you to trust in anything other than God. In Matthew 13, Jesus teaches us, or teaches the crowds and the disciples about different types of heart soils, a.k.a., also known as the parable of the sowers. And in the analogy, there's a farmer that spreads seed in the garden. And then he later goes on to explain what each one of these soils mean and what the seed is that's broadcasted on these soils. He starts with the first one. He says that some of the seed fell on a road. And then when that seed fell on a road, a raven or a crow came and snatched it away. He says that's Satan snatching that out of someone that's hardened their heart from the gospel. And then he says some of the seed fell on rocky ground. This was ground that just had a thin layer of soil under it and then rock underneath of it. It began to take root and spring up 
And then after the sun came out and the, it started to weather, it quickly died. He said, that's like somebody that receives the gospel and it looks like this person is a genuine convert. And then when persecution comes, they're nowhere to be seen because they did not have real, true, saving faith. And then the third one that he gives, the seed falls onto rocky, or sorry, uh, thorny and weeds, ground, ground that's covered with weeds and thorns. And then he says, that, that plant starts to grow up, and then quickly the thorns and the weeds start to overtake it. And he gives this analogy about what the thorns and the weeds are. He says the thorns and the weeds are like the anxieties of the world crowding you and strangulating you. And he says it's also like the deceitfulness of wealth. They both choke you out. They both suffocate you and twist the word of God right out of your soul. That word choke in the original language, that's exactly what it means. It means to suffocate. It just chokes, chokes you to where you have no life. Did you know that God does not want you to think that way? He does not want you to absorb your time and your mind and your heart and be consumed with worry. He does not want his children to sit around in perpetual fear because God is concerned with the way his children live and think. Jesus also teaches us that worry is a pattern of the Gentiles, the lost people. Look down at your passage here in verse 32. It says, For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. This is what the Gentiles do. People who have no hope, people who have no peace, look to things for satisfaction. They're looking for food, clothing, water, all these things to bring them fulfillment. That's not the way God designed us. God designed us to worship Him and Him alone. We are to find our worth, our value, our satisfaction in God alone through the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 34, we see another problem that brings about worry. Being overly concerned about the future. People can get all wrapped up in what will happen in the future. Let's read that. He says, so do not worry. There's that do not worry again, that command. Do not worry about what? About tomorrow. For tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has its trouble of its own. Well, we already know what happened in the past because it's already gone by and we, can, we, we know what's happened, but we have no idea what's going to happen in the future. It's like a big question mark in our mind. And you can get so hyper-focused on what's going to happen in the future, it will just take your mind off living for today. It'll take your mind off living for the kingdom of God today. This is why doomsday prophets make such a killing off of people. Because they get people so worked up and stoked up with fear that they think Armageddon's going to happen the very next day. So if they can get you to be in this state of perpetual fear, they can get some money out of you for some sort of survival kit or underground bunker that they try to sell all the time on the TV. <clears throat> but you, we can get so hyper-focused on these things. Notice Jesus tells us tomorrow has enough worry for itself. 
and we don't need to add anything to it. It's got its own problems. God does not want you to live in the future. God wants you to live in the present that he is ordaining to happen at this very moment. Live and trust God for today. His grace is sufficient for you every single day. Don't be concerned with what's going to go on tomorrow. Live life today for Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Because the future does not belong to us. The future belongs to God. And by no means we need to understand that that doesn't mean plan. Don't plan for the future. It's wise to plan out for the future. Being proactive and charting out your month or your years to come. I know here at Riverbend our pastors and elders, they got a, I think they still got it back, a big calendar, you know, where they got everything plotted out that's going to happen through a year span. You know, that's important. God wants us to plan our steps. He wants us to think forward. It's, it's wise to plan, but he does not want to get, he doesn't want us to get concerned about the endless possibilities that can happen within those days. You just got to kind of go with the flow. You're trusting the Lord that he is working out his plan because it's going to happen just the way that God ordains it. So the question then arises, how, how do I trust God? What, what does that look like? You tell me I don't need to worry. How, how do I combat these things? Well, I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 33 because Jesus answers it right there for us. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Did you hear that? That word seek, which brings us to our first uh, number one under the second point, which is seek with intensity. That word seek there means to seek after, to seek for, or to aim at, or to strive after. We are to have an action that is toward seeking the kingdom of God. It should be something that we are aiming for every single day, right? It's not just a, a casual desire or something we'll just finally get around to. No, it's doing what you want and giving. It's not doing, sorry, it's not doing what you want and then just giving God your leftover time, okay? That's, what, that's not what seeking the, uh, the kingdom of God is about. But what it is, it's a burning desire that there is nothing else out there that is going to satisfy you until you come and seek the kingdom of God. Roger Babson, an American historian, was visiting the president of Argentina. This happened about 100 years ago. And he asked a question to the president, or the president asked a question to this historian. He said, you're a stu student of history with unlimited resources and uh, I have a question for you he said will you please tell me why South America with all its unlimited resources and that it has been in, in the fact that it's been settled before North America and why is it that why is it that South America has progressed not as far as 
North America has progressed. It's way behind in its civilization. It's way behind in its material prosperity. Why is that? And the historian kind of turned the question around. He said, uh, Mr. President, uh, you ev evidently have studied this question. I would, I would like to know your answer to that. <laughs> and the president replied, as he thought through his explanation, he said that uh, the fact that South America was settled by Spaniards who came seeking gold, while the North Americans that came, the pilgrims that came to settle, they were uh, pilgrims who were coming to seek the kingdom of God. And there's a greater spiritual meaning behind this story. The church, and it is when you seek the riches of this world, you will only be bogged down with the cares and anxieties of it. But when you seek God and his kingdom, you get the blessings and the joy of overflowing love and compassion and grace that he pours into your soul. Another way that we can seek God is through prayer. When Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray, he includes God's kingdom in his prayer. You've heard it before. 6.10, he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When you seek God and his kingdom through prayer, you ask God that his sovereignty would be done in your life. Essentially what you're doing is exactly what your heavenly father desires from you. You are talking to him. Did you know that prayer is having a conversation with God? It's a two-way street, you know. We hear from God through his word, and he hears from his children through our prayers. Who in here has children? You, oh, wow, we got a bunch. Do you like it when your children come to you and converse with you? Do you desire to hear from them on a daily basis how they're doing? You want to hear from them so you can help them, right? You want to hear from them because you want to be able to speak truth in their lives and you want to hear from them because you want to love them because after all, they're your children. The same goes for God. Part of seeking the kingdom is pouring your heart out to the Lord. He already knows what you're going through, right? He's sovereign, he's omniscient, he knows everything, but he wants to hear it come out of your mouth. Point two, seek with priority. Jesus tells us to seek his kingdom first. It is to be the first priority, not the last resort. It's the first thing you are to seek, not the second. It needs to be our ultimate desire. There should be no competing second place. Seeking God's kingdom means seeking his sovereign power. It is, it is to recognize that we belong to him. It's knowing and believing that we do not belong to this world. We belong to the lordship and rule of our King Jesus. Number three, seek to live for him. We are to seek his glory by seeking his righteousness. God desires that his children live as he does. As we live unto him, we walk in the light as he is in the light. We are reflecting the lives that the blood of Jesus Christ has purchased us on the cross. Now, God is not looking for perfection in our lives. There is only one who's perfect. 
And that person is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The Lord Jesus Christ is the only one that walked this earth that is absolutely perfect. We are not. So we're not striving for perfection, but we're living with direction. A direction that is headed towards living for him. A direction that is kingdom-minded. A direction in which God's promises will take care of our fears and worries. And that is precisely what he says will be the result. God says, if you seek me and my kingdom, I'll take care of all these other things for you. Right? Look at verse 33 again. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Do you believe that this evening? Church, do you believe that this evening? Do you believe that God is able to provide for you? Do you believe that trusting in him is what is going to help you overcome worry? That's what's going to help you stop. So we must trust in God's provisions and how he demonstrates that in his sovereign care for creation. From the birds to the flowers, you've got so much. You've got so much general revelation that God has given you to show what he does. He shows us every day. And we must trust God by putting his kingdom first every day. Amen. All right, let's pray and we'll finish up. Father God, we thank you. that We can look to your word for hope and peace and fulfillment and joy and satisfaction. Lord, I pray if there were any hearts that were just overloaded with worry and anxiety tonight, Lord, that your word spoke to them, that you helped them to trust more in God than ever. Lord, maximize our little faith. Help us when we're weak. Lord, help us to look to your kingdom every single day and put any competing affections out of the picture. Lord, you are worthy of our trust. You have proved that over and over to us every single day. Help us to trust in Jesus Christ more as you have us here. Help us to always seek first the kingdom of God. We need your help, Lord. Help us to put away worry and maximize trust in our hearts and lives here tonight. We thank you and pray this in our King's sweet Jesus Christ's name. Amen.